It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Today, we have a special guest speaker on campus, so buckle your seatbelts. We're going to kick off... uh daily thunder this morning it's funny because uh, the guy who is going to be speaking has uh, falsely accused this of being morning thunder now he's going to come up and do it we were just joking in the back that he's probably going to start a san antonio version of morning thunder uh just to compete but uh it's philip telfer and so i'm only doing an introduction just for the sake of our broader audience out there uh, and bringing you guys into what we're doing here on campus of course, we have some advanced students uh, that are on campus presently uh, going through our Ellerslie training. But we also have uh, something that is called the Story Summit, which is an extension of the uh, Christian Worldview Film Festival and the Filmmakers Guild. And that's headed up by uh, none other than Philip Telfer, who's going to be speaking to us this morning. And I don't know if it's, uh, it might sound like a hyperbole to say he's one of my favorite people, because it just doesn't sound like a, a typical introduction. But Philip, you really are blessing in my life, just watching you live out your life, your convictions. Uh, you always know where Philip stands, and Philip will speak straight with you, and if he doesn't agree with something, he'll just tell you. <laughs> and But he'll also exhort you and encourage you where he sees you uh, walking a straight and narrow way. And there's uh, everyone needs a Philip Telfer in their life, and I think the body of Christ, and I say this genuinely, we desperately need Philip Telfer right now, and you're a gift uh, to us. Your stance with the Christian Worldview Film Festival, I have such a burden, uh, personally, as I know many of us do in this room, to see the use of media be steered towards the glory of God. And we see what's happened with the Christian music industry where celebrity has taken over, where the bottom line in finances has a tendency to lead. And we see that vulnerability in film uh, as well. And so to see the the Kendrick passion to, to, to steer this towards the glory of God and to have humility rule in the body of Christ, in the arts, is a central passion for you. And I just want to commend you even publicly and say thank you for your stance in that regard. And thank you for uh, having a rather thankless job in it because your job doesn't include a lot of celebrity. <laughs> Behind the scenes, being a chaplain of this movement doesn't receive a lot of accolades, a lot of pats on the back. It's usually the, the names that are the actors or the directors or the producers that are going to be more noted. And yet I would say what you are doing is of extreme importance. So I want to commend you for that. I also want to, to say it's just a privilege to have you be a part of Daily Thunder this morning. Uh, this the Story Summit so far uh, has just been tremendous. It, it has been uh, a enriching beautiful uh, picture of how God himself is a storyteller and how he uses us to tell his story. And so uh, just invite you, uh, Philip, to exhort us this morning uh, with the word. It's a privilege to be here, and I'm going to be dovetailing on a lot of the things you've been learning this uh, weekend. Now, a basic understanding of story structure, which we have been studying, consists of three or five parts or acts, or they could be more, and some, I don't know if anybody has done any less. And you know this already, but because of the broadcast, the Morning Thunder broadcast, I'm going to uh, give a quick basic overview uh, because you've been taking this in. So it'll be, a over, it'll be a review for you, and it'll be an overview for our extended audience. So in the three-act structure, the first act is, has a distinct plot point that uh, breaks into the second, and also the, a plot point in the second act that breaks into the third. When diagrammed as a pyramid, acts one and two you know, will ascend uh, to the break into the third. That, that ascent is called the ascending action. And the downward side of that pyramid is the break into the third act until the, until the resolution is called the descending action. I'm, I'm describing this a little bit in detail because I, we're going to be focusing today on descending action. So I want you to just keep that in mind. Now, 
that's that would be the three-act story structure. Uh, I like this morning. I'll be leaning on the five-act story structure, which is nearly identical. It's just a different way to describe what I just did. In the five-act, it just makes it more simple for what I'm going to do this morning. A five-act looks just like a triangle. You got your, you, you have your introduction in Act One. You have the ascending action up to the the third, the the climax or the turning point. Then you have the descending action down the other side of that triangle uh, to your conclusion. And the reason I like that is they would call that descending action the fourth act, and that's really the the title here. You know, I want to talk about that fourth act, that descending action. And once again, for those that are watching uh, the broadcast of this. Uh, these these are some things that our our storytellers are, are once again very familiar with, but I'm going to simplify this. So once again, that first act is setting the stage. Who are the key players? It's the introduction to your protagonist, oftentimes also your antagonist. It lays out the principal elements of the story, what you're about to witness. Where does it happen? What time does it happen? You you have the setting. That second part, which we're calling the rising action, is the rise of the conflict in the story. What goes wrong? What's what's going? What's it going to take to set it right? Who is going to be the hero in the story to help turn things around? And then that middle part of the story, which is often referred to as the climax or the turning point, it's a marked change of direction, either for good or for bad, depending on whether the story is a tragedy or otherwise. The fourth part, which we'll be focusing on, is referred to that falling action. You're not yet at the conclusion, but there's a resistance that is put up to the goal, and it's、uh, it's the full court press against what the hero desires to achieve. And it's usually that act, that fourth act, where you're at the edge of your seat because it looks as if evil is going to win, and so it's a definitely a, a time of suspense. And the ending. Is not sure at the climax. You you feel confident that it's going to have the ending that you hope,、uh, but in that fourth act, things see, tend to turn around, and you begin to wonder, well, maybe maybe that's not the direction it's going. And of course, the last part of the story is the conclusion. It's the point where the conflict is finalized, the revelation has been made, a victory has been won or it's been lost. The complexity. Or they, as they refer to the the plot as a knot, or the knots that have been tied,、uh, the knot has been unraveled, and whatever it is, the story finds resolution. Now, I don't know about you, but personally, I don't like tragic stories. I like stories. I like the happily ever after stories. And、uh, for those of you who love tragedy, that's fine for you. But I believe it's quite natural to,、um, and I think it's actually quite supernatural. To like the happily ever after stories, because that's ultimately the story God wants to have with you, is that happily ever after story. It's what He wants to live out with His children. That's what I want to experience. I, I don't know if anybody here wants to sign up for a tragedy. You know, it's like, how, you know, who, who would like to play the part of the, tra-、uh, the tragedy? So, I want to experience the happily ever after. And so this morning, I'm gonna. This is gonna dovetail with a lot of what Aaron Burns had taught on our opening night. With、uh, a distinct focus on on the fourth act, because I, like he did on Friday night or Thursday night, I'm going to talk about those two stories that he brought up, God's story and our own story. But once again, I'm just、uh, what's going to be different from what I'm sharing with what he shared is I am going to focus on this fourth act in your life. So let's start with looking at God's story again as a review. And I was so delighted Thursday night to like, oh my goodness, he's he stole my notes. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I thought, well, that's good because it'll dovetail. But in Act One, we're we're introduced in God's story to the creation, His Word, the Spirit, brooding over the earth. We're introduced to creation, God's masterpiece of Adam and and Eve. We're also introduced to Satan in the Garden of Eden, the antagonist, and、uh, we we see. The result of temptation and sin entering into the world, the shame and ultimately death. So that's that leads us into Act Number Two, which of course is this rising action of the conflict. The conflict rises as corruption 
due to sin is, is made manifest in the world. And then God gives the law, the gavel comes down upon man, and it is clear that mankind is utterly lost and is in need of a savior. That's act two. Of course, act three, as we talk about the climax of the turning point in God's story, I don't think anybody that, that is a Christian would deny that that climax, that turning point is the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's the turning point of all, all history. And uh, that is, and, and then he ascends to heaven where he rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. Now I'm gonna skip over act four for a moment and I'm gonna read from 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, you'll wanna to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 because this is where are gonna be our main text this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, verses uh, 24. It says, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom, of, kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So I'm gonna come back to this verse in a moment, but I want you to see that there's an anticipation of a conclusion to the story which comes up after act four. We know this because it says that Jesus Christ rules and reigns until, you know, that, that reign continues until all enemies are put under his feet. The last enemy that will be defeated is death. And um, as last I knew, uh, people are still dying. And um, so we know that there's still death in this world. There's still an enemy. Actually, there's many enemies to Christ and his kingdom. And so we, even though there has been a turning point there is a continued uh, battle that's going on until we get to this point, this act five, this, this conclusion where it says that he's going to put an end to all of these uh, antagonists and the last antagonist is death itself. So let's focus on the fourth act though, this act leading up to the conclusion, the descending action. It's where I want to put the focus on this morning. It's sometimes called the falling action. And what happens, you know, in this part of the story, in God's story, we're going we're gonna to look at our own story in the fourth act, but let's look at God's story. What's happening in the fourth act of his story, this falling action? Uh, we know that Jesus rose from the grave. We know he ascended up to heaven. And we would, you would think, you know, if, if it was just up to our brains. Well, you know, they're not, they're a little larger than a pea. I, I once had a pastor told me, Philip, just always remember at the largest, your brain is about the size of a coconut, you know, and, uh, and yet God's mind more than encompasses the entire universe. So sometimes we're, we're trying to think these things through with our coconut sized brains. And so with our coconut sized brain thinking this through, we'd go, well, if the climax is Christ, the turning point is his his birth, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven, wouldn't you think that this is the happily ever after? Wouldn't you think, well, didn't he just bring in the happily ever after? Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what he came for? So why are we not living the happily ever after right now? What's, what's actually going on? Well, this is why it's important to understand the falling action, this fourth act, because we're not at the conclusion yet. So we're going to go back to Paul's words in Corinthians. So you're already in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at the fourth act being described here. So 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to start with verse 19. So we're going to back it up a little bit. The Apostle Paul is what he's doing is he's laying out the he's he's been laying out the gospel the basic gospel message, but he's he's have, he has a focus on the conclusion, which is the resurrection of the body from the dead, the resurrection of our bodies from the dead. We already know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but the early church um, we need to learn from them because they they did not preach as they preached the gospel they didn't they didn't just simply say 
uh, get saved so that you can keep out of hell and go to heaven. The emphasis, they believe that, of course, so that's a true statement. You get saved and that keeps you out of hell and, and that gets you into heaven. But really that's not what they, they put an emphasis on their preaching. They actually preach the resurrection. It says this time and time again. It was a focal point that there was, there was a, a conclusion to the story that God is telling. And it, and it concludes with Christ's return and our bodies being resurrected from the dead. So 1 Corinthians 15 is really dealing with that subject. But look at verse 19 as the Apostle Paul makes some arguments. He says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. And of course, the Apostle Paul is not thinking of a three-act or a five-act story structure. He didn't read Save the Cat, you know. He's not really looking at this through the, the same lens as we are this morning. But if he was to, if he was to know about the five-act and he said, okay, yeah, we're, if, if Act 4 is the conclusion of this drama, we are ruined. It's the reality. You know, if, if, if this is the conclusion, he says, we are of all men the most pitiable. But did Jesus come and die and rise from the dead so that we can experience uh, the happy ending, the happily ever after in our short life? Well, look at verse 20. It says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So we see that he's leading up to the fact that the conclusion is not death. Our conclusion is not dying in order to go to heaven. There's, another, there's, a, there's a bigger conclusion. And I want to talk about that. So he says, verse 21, he says, For since man... By man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, this was part of our uh, morning thunder, daily thunder, sorry. Um, I guess that was yesterday. So Eric spoke about this in Adam. So by man also came the resurrection of, of the dead. For in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. This is the conclusion leading up to the conclusion of the drama. This is now, we're now entering into Act 5 in the, these passages. He says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. So there's no more antagonism. It says, for he must rule and reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That's the last antagonist. Actually, that's a good title, isn't it? That would make a good story, The Last Antagonist. Now, presently, once again, there are still enemies of, of Christ, and, and presently there are still deaths. So we know we're not there. We're not, we have not entered into the final act. This is so critical for us to understand our own story. Because as long... Now, the next couple of verses I'm going to read, just to be consistent and go through... I'll just warn you, I'm not going to actually give any commentary because we're about to wade into one of the most controversial passages and misunderstood passages in the Bible, um, which you'll see. But let me just read through them and continue on. It says, For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all, and here's the real controversial passage. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? So we're going to skip over that. There are probably more than uh, 40 interpretations. You ha have fun. I'm going to keep going. Uh, it doesn't, uh, doesn't fit our purpose here this morning. Okay, th this next verse is what I want to focus on, and I want you to think about it in light of Act 4, this descending action this act that comes after a turning point, it's before the conclusion, and it is as if, it feels as if evil may yet win the day. Verse 30, he says, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Can anybody relate to this? Probably not at the level of the Apostle Paul, who was truly in physical jeopardy. His life was in jeopardy. He had we, we have a list of the things that he had gone through during his short life. 
But I think at many levels, we can relate to this. We can say, why? Why are we constantly being put into trials and troubles and our goals and our dreams and the things that we're striving for seem to constantly get pushed back and I'm not, I don't feel like I'm living the happily ever life right now. Maybe I'm the only one that can relate to this verse, but um, I see a few heads nodding. But here's, this is the Apostle Paul, one of my heroes. He says, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What we have to understand is Paul is not despairing of life here. He's actually full of hope for an ultimate good end, a good conclusion. And though he's not thinking of the three-act or the five-act story structure, he understood the place he lived in, in that overall drama. So I believe the Apostle Paul truly does anticipate here Act 5, the, re the resolution, the happily ever after, the culmination which we see at the resurrection of our bodies at the return of Jesus Christ. It, there, there comes, that brings a close to this present story, and I believe it opens, it'll be opening a new story at, at that point. Um, but the Bible makes it clear that that will be the close. That's, that's the, it says, it's the end. You, you come to the end of the book, the end, you know. Thankfully, there's another book after that. I mean, there's something he's planning. It's going to be very exciting. But until then, this is, uh, this is not the end. We're not there yet. So his argument, essentially, up to this point is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase this in the language that I've been using of drama. So his argument is essentially, if this is the happily ever after now, then why do I stand in jeopardy every hour? Why am I experiencing troubles and trials and things that are very painful to go through? And, and why am I at a place where I'm dying daily? Uh, and, and why are we, if this is the happily ever after, then we are of most men uh, or the most pitiable. So if the happily ever after is here and now, then really it's a, it's a very defeatist story. And we should just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So that's essentially what he's saying. So practically though, historically, what is act four in God's story? Well, it's in brief, let's just start, you start with Acts chapter 2, you have 120 people in an upper room praying, seeking the Lord, and the power of the Holy Spirit comes down, Peter gets up, preaches the gospel, thousands of people are saved, and we see a new chapter begin, uh, a new act begin in God's story, and that's the gospel going out to all the world. Uh, the, that has continued now for 2,000 years. And that story is one that we'll talk about, this act four. And you might say, well, Philip, that's a really long act. You know, that's, I mean, act three, that's like 30-some years. And now we have act four. It's like going on 2,000 years. Well, how long was act two? <laughs> it was a little bit longer. So uh, act two was pretty long in God's story. But what I want to do is, what we, I want to shift, because I want to talk about that second story, which Aaron also brought in. Let's, I want to talk about our story. It's, it's one that we actually know sometimes better than the one that I just described, because it's the story about your life. It's a story about your dreams, your destiny, uh, the pursuit that you have in your life of that happily ever after. We think of it as a story within a, a meta story. So God's meta story our lives become uh, a smaller story within that. Or maybe it's better to understand our lives as a scene or maybe even just a beat or a, or a plot point. 
If you grew up watching TV like I did, then you were conditioned to think that all drama and problems resolve in a half hour. Um, you know, most shows, half hour, maybe, maybe it was the hour long, but most of them a half hour. You, you have your, uh, this whole story arc that begins and concludes in a half hour. If it was a movie, then you got to commit at least two hours to see um, the knot unraveled uh, by the end of those two hours. And so you get to the happily ever after the resolution of the story, and you, you think, well, what's wrong with that? And well, it's possibly nothing unless you have adopted that story as a template for your life instead of what's really happening. Because if you're, if you're basing your experience and you're trying to fit it through the lens of Hollywood production, then we're going to struggle to understand the role we play in God's drama, to understand where your life dovetails into this, and you don't have a choice. You were not born in the first act. You were not placed upon this earth during the second act. I know many of us here wished we would have been there for the third act. And we have not yet gotten to the fifth act. So where are you? You're in the fourth act. You are part of God's story in the, what we call the descending or the falling action. And in drama, it's one of the most exciting parts of the drama that's being played out. Yet, it's also sometimes the most darkest. That's where you would get the dark night of the soul, you know, moment. It's where you get to the all is lost, seemingly all is lost moment. It's during this descending action. So this, as we think about the happily ever after, this idea that we're pursuing in our hearts because we're conditioned by what we were raised with, the type of media that we've, we've consumed, that we have this idea that the resolution, the big, the big resolu resolution in life needs to happen in my life right now. And we're constantly pursuing this. I, this is a hard concept. I hope that you can at least catch it. You know, if this is a puzzle we were putting together, you may not see the whole picture from what I'm trying to describe. I hope that maybe you can at least see the border pieces come into place. I want you to think deep enough about this to, to understand this descending action, to understand your role in that descending action, and to understand that if you were living your life always just longing saying, you know what, what I need to achieve while I'm here in this life is that happily ever after. I want to see the conclusion now fulfilled in my life. Then what's going to happen is you are never going to feel like you have accomplished what you want to accomplish. You're going to feel discontent in this world. You're going to feel like there's always something out there that you can't Grasp. I mean, how many, I'm going to confess, because I've grown up in this culture. And so I, it's been ingrained in me where it, it, the self-actualization and uh, follow your dreams and being taught you can be whatever you want to be, it is so deeply instilled in our culture that what happens is we are continually thinking of some conclusion in our life that we can experience, sit back and watch and revel in and go, there it is, that's it. And do you know that people continue to pursue that, Christian and non-Christian? When you see it in those that are, have become famous, uh, that's why you have, you know, if you think about the life of someone like Michael Jackson, a tragedy, that's a, that's a tragic story. A person who just like, just like you, if you, you know, you'd say, oh, I wouldn't want to end my life the way his life ended. But yet you have the same desires that he had. You have the same, it's just that you haven't had the opportunities and yet many of us are waiting like, oh, if I just had the opportunity, if I just had the leg up, if I just had the, the, this experience that I've seen others get, I'll finally arrive somewhere. I'll finally be what uh, I believe I'm destined to be. And we have this tension, 
And it's because we're not living in the fourth act. It's because we're trying to live in another story. We're trying to see that conclusion happen in our life. And I think it's so critical that we understand where we are in this place and time so that we can say, I have a role to play in this fourth act. It's a critical role because this drama is going to end sometime, but, it, but I'm not the hero in the story. And, and I'm not the one who's going to untie all the knots, yet uh, I have a role to play. In fact, it, here's something very humbling for all of us. You know, we want to think of our life as a story within that meta story. And that's okay. It, it is. But when we get down to the practical aspects, what if I said, you know what, though? In, in God's drama, guess what? He, he's not actually scripted you as even a story within his story. He scripted you as a scene. Well, that's a little more humbling. I'm just a scene? What, what, what if you were just, how about this? What if you're just a set dressing or a prop? I mean, when I, I did not like drama, you know, and I, and I still, you, I'm not, I have no aspirations for acting. I don't like to be in front of cameras. Um, I don't even like to do, you know, John Clay really bugged me. He says, Philip, we need you to do a video for the story summit. I'm like, I don't want to do a video. Philip, you gotta do a video. And I'm like, I don't want to do a video. I don't like getting in front of cameras. It's not in me. And that, that's why I was in, in junior high, high school. I remember in junior high class we had, I actually took a drama class just because we had a new teacher fresh out of college. She was really pretty. And so all the junior high boys, we were all smitten with her. And so we took her class. And, uh, and it was terrible because um, I had no real desire to do any acting. And I was always getting in trouble. I was a cut up in class. And so I often, she, what she would do when you misbehaved in class, she's, she was like your typical 20th century, you know, woo, you know, drama teacher. She was, she was out there, her, her ideas. And so anyway, when you got in trouble, she made you a rock, a bug, or a tree. And so um, the tree, you would have to just get up from your desk and you'd have to stand there and put your arms in some tree position. You could choose your position but then you had to just stay there. I'm a tree, you know, until she said, okay, you can sit down now. Um, a rock was a little better because it's a little, it could be, you know, that you just, you know, got in the ground and curled up in a little ball and then you were a rock, you know. If she was really mad at you, you became the bug. Nobody wanted to be a bug, you know. I had to be a bug a few times and that's when you got on your back and you put your hands and your feet up in the air like a dead bug. And uh, so that was the bug. And uh, I had to be a bug a few times, very humiliating. But, um, you know, but even when we did these junior high dramas, it became very apparent that there were certain people where they're not going to be the lead actors. It's just not, it's, it's not who you are. It's not in your DNA. And I was one of those people so I was always cast as a prop or, or a set dressing, you know. Philip, you're the tree, you know. You're going to be the flower over here or you're going to be, you know, whatever. I did have like one part. All I had to do was come out on stage and jump up onto a box. And I maybe this, this kind of describes my life. It maybe describes yours, but that's all I had to do. It was one of these things where everybody got into a position and you held your position until the, the scene was done. So all I have to do is come out on stage. I'm kind of tall. I can just jump up onto this box, take a position, freeze. What do I do? In nervousness, I don't like the stage. My parents are all out there. This is so much pressure. And I, and I go and I jump up on the box and, and I miss. I, I stumble. I fall off the box. And I'm like, boy, we didn't practice this. What am I supposed to do? Do I freeze? in my humiliating spot on the ground, but that was my big moment. After that, when I got into high school, I realized there's no way I want to ever be on stage. So I actually took a job. I did like the whole, I liked the culture of the drama, so I did volunteer and I helped make sets. And I was like one of the behind the scenes kind of guys, you know, moving sets off and on. And, and you know what, but that's, you know, in God's story, if you really understand where you, you are, you know that it, the story, your story does not resolve now. And if you're always looking for a resolve to your story now, then that tells us, that tells you, you're not understanding what's happening. You know, you're actually removing yourself out of God's meta story and you're trying to 
um, enter into the narrative that is being spelled out by our culture today. The, um, the, the fulfillment through self-actualization, this idea of uh, following your dreams, this idea of somehow achieving and, and really memorializing yourself for a time, for, for even beyond yourself. That's what people are desiring to do. It's really essentially idolatry, uh, trying to set ourselves up as, as gods that will be worshipped and will be remembered. But that's not, that's, that's what man has always struggled with. It's just, it's taken on a new form in the 21st century with an entertainment culture. So it's going to take a lot of work. And I understand that even giving this concept today may not sink in right now. That's why I said, hopefully you can at least get the, the, the outer pieces, your, your edge pieces to this puzzle. And I would encourage you to keep fleshing this out in your own life and, and begin to recognize the struggle of not wanting to be in the fourth act, essentially. It's like, I don't want to be in the fourth act. I don't want to be a prop. I don't want to be set dressing. I don't want God to say, you're a bug. You're a tree. You're, you know, I need you to be a rock right now. Um, I don't want the insignificant part. I don't want the struggle. I don't want the pain. I don't want to be in the fight. I don't want to say, well, really? I mean, are you saying that it's put possibly my entire life is going to be dying daily? Are, are you saying that my life may be just full of, of trials? And, and, and once again, we understand story arcs, and so does God. He, anything that we discover that we recognize as true, you know, God already knows, by the way. You know, so if we see story arcs, we didn't, nobody invented story arcs. If they exist, it's because God already knew about them. You know, he's already put them in place. So yes, there are story arcs. And there's, you have a character arc. And it's not going to be just, okay, trial, 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 trial. And then we die and we wait for the resurrection. And, and the Apostle Paul's life wasn't like that either. But we tend to focus on those trials. And we see those. They, they tend to fill the, the, the view that we have, our limited view. They fill the screen. And they tend to be the macro shots. They're the close-ups. And we tend to forget about all the wonderful moments. So, I'm getting, sorry, I'm getting off my notes here. Let me get back on track here. So back to that main story. God's story. It's, it's a shame that even in this story, as we realize that there's an antagonist, that the 21st century Christians have really dismissed Satan as a, just a metaphor or a fable. It's, a, it's really an ultimate smokescreen. It's, it's the effective red herring, this idea of just living your own story, pursue your dreams, realize you're happily ever after now. That's the whole meaning of life. And if you don't believe it touches you, I, I, would, I would challenge that. I, I believe that everyone in this room and everyone listening in some aspect that lives and breathes in the 21st century entertainment-driven culture is going to be touched in some manner to this of, of what we are engrossed in and the stories that we are constantly watching and looking for that resolve. So not realizing that this is part of the plot of the antagonist to actually take you out of the story, get you wrapped up in your own little story, then uh, as long as that, that's, part of, that's part of the battle, you know, that he's, he's actually, he wants you to get out of God's story. He wants you to try to escape the fourth act. So as long as we're convinced that in this life we're pursuing the happily ever after, then uh, our lives will be consumed with that pursuit until that pitiful book closes and we discover too late. And that's really, I was kind of thinking about that as, as Aaron chose the, the film up to, to study. You know, I think some of that theme is what we were looking at, to, to look back and go, oh my goodness, there was something unfolding and it was part of a bigger story that, and I was focused on something else and, it, and I discover it late in the game. So this, and part of it also, it's not just the, the entertainment-driven culture that we're struggling with. We, all, we are also struggling with some mediocre, I won't say wrong, I'll just say some mediocre theology in the 20th and 21st century that has spread 
an overemphasis of an evangelistic message that basically says, you know, get saved so that you can go to heaven. Now, when you combine that, now, once again, I've already told you, I believe that's true. The apostle Paul taught to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Peter, Paul both taught about this body as kind of a tent that we're living in temporarily. And, uh, and so they, you, we're, we're going to uh, shed this tent and, and someday God's going to resurrect it and it's going to be a, a permanent dwelling. The reason they use tent is because tent is, is like a sojourner's dwelling. But God is actually does want that tent to be transformed into something that's eternal. So uh, it's actually, and I'm going to go off on a rabbit trail here. We do have to be careful. It was Gnostic thinking that always taught that the flesh is evil and only that which is a spirit is good, which is untrue because when God created the earth and everything that was in it at the beginning, what did he say? It is good. It was all material. He created it. It was good. Sin brought in corruption. That was not good. And we also know that not all spirit is good because we know that there are evil spirits. So, so the Gnostic idea is that only flesh, that flesh, all flesh and all material things are evil and only that which is spirit is good is completely gone. So now we've, unfortunately, you know, in the second century, third century, the church really battled against uh, this idea of Gnosticism and what they would call Christian Gnosticism, which is really not Christian Gnosticism, by the way, any more than um, I, I've heard it said about Christian science, that Christian science is like grape nuts because, uh, you know, grape nuts, there's no grapes and there's no nuts. Christian science, there's nothing Christian about it and there's nothing scientific about it. And the same thing, this idea of Christian Gnosticism that was being battled in the end of the first century into the second and third, there was nothing Christian about it and uh, there was nothing knowing. You know, Gnosticism has to do with, you know, secret knowledge. So there's nothing truly knowing in that. It was deception. And yet, that still remains today as we view, um, you know, and, and we do this. I've been at funerals, and we, we lay our loved ones to rest, and we say, well, that's not them. They're, the real them is, is now with the Lord. And that's, it's only partially true. The Bible never, the Bible doesn't teach that. Actually, the Bible says that that's, there's them. That's the, that's the only them we've ever known. It's that God gave you a body. He intended you to have a body. He gave Adam a body. He fashioned it. He created it. He intended Adam to have it for eternity. It was sin that brought death. So that, that as we lower a body into the grave, it reminds us of sin and the consequences of sin, but it's not the conclusion. You are not, God never intended us to be disembodied spirits for eternity. He's going to raise up our bodies from those graves, and he's going to reunite uh, an eternal body with our eternal soul and we're going to live forever as he intended but I'm just it was a little aside just because I do think we have to be careful uh, even understanding the narratives that we're trying to live in so we, we are not just trying to free ourselves from this physical body that's Gnostic ideas you know it still lives around today we're not just trying to be free from this no it's going to be redeemed that's the story that God is telling he's redeeming everything He's going to make it all new. Things have to die before they're made new, but they are made all new. So do you understand the conflict here? Because we're looking for all that newness, and we experience it to a certain level, but there is an ultimate ending where all things are made new, but it's not now. This fourth act is one where there is a tremendous amount of trial, struggle, difficulty, death, uh, that all of us are, are facing. And what helps is to look at what Paul is teaching here in Acts 15. He says, look, he says, I actually make it my boast. I die daily. Now, if this is the conclusion, if Act 4 is the conclusion, then that is insane. Why would anybody live that way? Why would you embrace and boast in it that I die daily if this is all we're, all we're living he says, it would be better for us to just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But that's not why he's saying that. He's saying, no, I boast that I die daily because he's embracing the fourth act. He's saying, you know what? This is all part of it. So instead of like bucking it, how about we just embrace it now? How about I just embrace living uh, 
you know, and, and as I live, to die daily to myself, to my flesh, so that I might live to Christ, to be used and purposeful in this act that is playing out in history. So we're in this fourth act, the real story that's happening, this, this descending action, the break into third, uh, leading up to that conclusion in that three-act structure, and recognizing that that turning point has happened through Jesus Christ. But in this fourth act, I, anybody familiar with the, the singer-songwriter David Wilcox? He's, a, he's like a folk musician, kind of a pseudo-Christian guy. He, uh, he has a song called, well, it's true. Um, so uh, he has a song called Love Will Show the Way. And uh, I'll try to remember some of the lyrics. He says, it starts out, you know, you say you see no hope. You say you see no reason to believe that the world will ever change. You say there's no reason to believe because there will always be some crazy, some with an army or a knife to wake you from your daydream and uh, bring the fear back into your life. And then it goes on to say, but what if, you know, um, let me see if I can remember this. He says, uh, I have to get the tune in my head. He talks about um, a stage being set, you know, so he gives actually the picture of a drama and where it looks as if uh, the evil side is going to win. It's actually describing the fourth act in a five-act structure where you're at the edge of your seat and you're thinking all is lost. And then he goes into the chorus and uh, it says, it is love that mixed the mortar. It is love that stacked these stones. It is love that made the stage here, though it looks like we're alone. And this scene set in shadows is the night is here to stay. There's evil cast around us, but it's love that shows the way. And it's a beautiful song. And it really talks about this fourth act and that, yeah, we, we but we have to understand that God is the one who's, who's created this stage. He's created, he is the one who's directing this drama. And it does have a final conclusion, but in the fourth act, that when, it, when you're at the edge of your seat, it looks as if evil may prevail. This is what happens in the fourth act. This is what happens in that dark night of the soul moment. This is what happens in the all is lost moment in drama where it, it looks as if the antagonist has the upper hand and that the protagonist, the hero of the story, may actually be failing in his mission. He may not achieve the goal that he intends. And as I look at America now, is, is that where we have been placed in this story for now? We're here. Uh, America continues to fall morally and spiritually. This hardly seems like a victorious battle that's being won at times. We see Islam on the rise. We see godless socialism continuing to uh, build deeper roots into this nation and, and uh, manifest as well as paganism and, and atheism is on the rise. We see a world that's all, seemingly always at the brink of war. Uh, we see sickness and disease, cancer, that continues to run ahead of the emerging medical sciences. You know, we've made such tremendous advances in medical science, and yet it seems like disease and cancer and things like that continue to, to keep out in the front. We don't seem to be winning against that either. It, Christianity seems at times to have little impact uh, in our nation. It's steadily being marginalized. We have a government that was once truly founded on the Word of God. It continues to, now, now it just spurns the Word of God in much of its actions. We have the family that has been decimated by divorce, by abortion, by perversion. We have a generation that is tremendously narcissistic, boastfully narcissistic. And then just about everything in our culture today here is seemingly acceptable in a postmodern relativistic culture, except the truth of Christianity. And we're feeling it more than ever. In my short lifetime, I've seen this tremendous downturn. And I'm 47 years old. I've been uh, walking with Jesus Christ for 30 years now. And in 30 years, I have witnessed it change. I have not seen an uptick in what seems to be the heroic endeavors of God's church in, in achieving the end. I've seen it seems like a downturn. And that uh, we would be of, if this is it, we are of most men, uh, of men the most pitiable. 
unless you understand where we're at, because we still live in a world where death comes, it's the, it's the 100% statistic, you know, we, we, everyone dies, some sooner, some later. But if you recognize that it's not about your story, uh, that you're part of that story, you're, you might be an actor cast by God, you might be just a scene, you might just be that prop, you might just be that set dressing, you might just be uh, some little part. Does, does, it, does that bother you? Does that bother you? I would say it bothers most of us. It's out of our control. You know, we're, we're saying, well, wait, wait, that's not the way I want it. But, uh, but let's, let's, let's say you want the role. You, there's, a, there's a casting call. You know, the Kendricks, I mean, movie seven gets in the works and they, they send out a casting call. And oh, I've just always dreamed that what I want to do is be, be, have a lead role in a Kendrick film, you know. And you, you uh, submit or you show up or however they're doing their casting and you don't get the role. Wow, so is your life over? Is it crushed? You just, yeah, you, your dream wasn't fulfilled. You see, we have a problem with that, you know, because like, well, why aren't things going the way I want them to go? And yet, I'm sure if you, uh, and, and I'm just trying to make an analogy here, if you, were, you didn't get the role, but you said, hey, could I, could I help with crafty, you know? Or, or could I just be a PA, or could I, you know, is there some way that I could just, how about I just show up on set and pick up garbage? I'll tell you, amen, hallelujah, brother, sister, you're on the team. You know, so when you begin to understand, where do I fit in this? Well, let's start by, humbling ourselves and being ready to serve, roll up our sleeves and, and even take the humble position that uh, God may ask us to, to do. If, if you don't have that mindset, by the way, if you don't make that transition now, I guarantee you, you will live your short life always feeling unfulfilled. And you will pursue and pursue and pursue. And what's, what's strangely bizarre about this is that as you're doing that, you are doing it on such a smaller scale than people that are not Christians are doing the same thing. And you can look at the lives and their disasters. You know, you look at, you, 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 I loved, you know, once again hearing Kanye, you know, really boast that he's been married five years, or is it six years? And that is a boast in Hollywood, in that culture, you know. He's like, I've been married six years, I'm a veteran. I've been, dude, I've been married 28 years, but I'm not famous, you know. Um, and I hope he has a long marriage. I, that's my prayer for him and anybody else. But at the same time, you know what? The, the world's doing it, and they're lost. And it's, and it's a dead end. It's a dead end road. Self-actualization is a dead end road. And yet somehow we have, we, it has been embedded in us, and, and we are trying. We're trying that same route. So I'm, I'm just asking you to consider the importance of what the Apostle Paul is saying about dying daily, about uh, understanding, entering into the fourth act, and also putting yourself in submission to our director, you know, of this drama, to say, I'm not here to define what role I'm going to play in this drama. I'm here to serve you as the director, and whatever role you give me, I am going to fulfill that role, and then you're going to find contentment and fulfillment and purpose and meaning in that. Not because of the role it is, but because you trust the person who's directing the drama. It's his story. And we're continually trying to remove ourselves. You know, we're trying to, like, take over the director's role. And uh, it's not a good place to be. So, I'm not sticking to my notes, and I need to wrap this up. So let me just uh, review here to see what I'm going to skip. Okay, I'm going to close with this. So don't, don't, uh, don't build, also don't build your theology or your, your practical Christian life around self-preservation. Not just self-actualization, but even self-preservation because we're, we struggle. It says that Jesus, for the, who, for the joy who was, that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus endured what he endured. He went through what he went through for a joy that was set before him. And we can have that, you know, we can have that same joy. So let's not build a theology around self-preservation, 
let's actually build our theology around what Jesus said. If you wish to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up a cross, and come follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. So if you're struggling and you're like, man, I just feel like I haven't found life. I'm having, it's like, I haven't grasped that yet. It's because you've yet to realize that in order to follow Jesus, you're going to have to die. You're going to have to die daily, and you're going to have to take up a cross. A cross, even when Jesus was sharing that, was not some uh, symbol that you held around your neck. It was, uh, it, was, it was one of the most, it was really where we get the word excruciating, crucifixion. It was the most excruciating death imaginable. And it was so humiliating. It was, it was uh, the Romans did not invent crucifixion. They just perfected the art of causing people to suffer before they died. And that's what they did. And so Jesus was saying, that's what I'm asking you to. And if you're saying, well, I don't want that, then you're not going to be living in his story because that's what he calls us to. He says, I, you want to be in my, if you want to be on my team, you want to be in my drama, you know, if, if you want to be on the right side, if you want to be with the protagonist instead of with the antagonist, then uh, this is what you're going to need to do. You're going to die. There's, there's no way around it. We cannot soft sell this. There's no way I would be not worth my salt as a, as a minister of the gospel, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, if, it, if I did not tell you there is no way around that. You don't have any other option. It's either a life of dying to self and following Jesus Christ and finding life in that, or you will constantly just pursue other, you try to get around it, and you are, are going to uh, feel very unfulfilled, you're always going to be longing, you're going to be grasping, and it's going to, it's not going to be what God intended for you. So I have two little word pictures for you to close with, and that is, first of all, there's, the, in order to, you know, as we've kind of put out the border pieces of this puzzle, and, and as we talk about filling in that picture that, that God is, is giving to us in his word, there are two things, first of all, because we're battling against the, the schemes and the ideals of this culture, the, the cultural theme that we've been raised with, what I've discovered is that thing, when you are passive, uh, if you are passive in this, corruption always has the upper hand in passivity. And let me use the analogy of a field that goes fallow, because I, I grew up in the country for many of the years of my life. I've lived in the country around agriculture. And when you um, have a field that you're cultivating, you can, you can produce all sorts of things on a cultivated field if you've got good soil and you've got all the right elements. But as soon as you stop cultivating a field, things still grow, but not the things that you want. You know, a field gone fallow will be very fruitful to grow weeds, noxious plants, things that, not, that you really don't want. Uh, but it won't be what you, you have to cultivate. So in a state of passivity, something that goes fallow, corruption always has the upper hand. That's the bottom line. You, you will, corruption wins. So, um, so this idea of dying to self, finding life in Christ, you know, does take action. And we're going to have to remain active in that field. Of course, Edmund Burke, we are familiar with the famous quote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. But it's essentially that principle that when you do not pursue, actively pursue cultivating what the right ideas, the wrong ideas are what will take root in your life. So there's no way around that either. This is you've got to enter the battle and that battle is for the rest of your life. That's why the Bible has so many of these themes about resisting or holding fast or continuing or laying hold on things or fighting for something or taking a stand. All right, so the last thought, oh, and this is uh, one of my favorite quotes from A.W. Tozer. He says, people think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. We are not here to fight. We are here to frolic. We are not in a foreign land. We are at home. We are not getting ready to live, but we are already living. And the best we can do is rid ourselves of our inhibitions and our frustrations and live this life to the full. That nails it right there. You know, you just, maybe I should have just done that. I could have saved you an hour. 
Could have just quoted that, right? All right, last analogy is um, I want you to think about being climatized to the things that I've been teaching. This idea that you can't be passive about this. You need to understand, mm, I need to get in this drama. I need to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip the illustration here because we're talking about the descending action. Well, that's just in the descending action, you know, in the model. But I'm going to talk about that descending action also involving you to climb to a higher elevation in your life regarding being very disciplined to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really think about these things. And I once watched a documentary about um, those that were trying to summit Mount Everest, and it was very enlightening because I never, you know, you hear about people climbing tall mountains, and you hear about Mount Everest as being, the, you know, that's the ultimate for climbers, and very few people do it, and it's very deadly, and I, I never understood the process and so as I watched this documentary, it was very informing as they have m multiple base camps going up the mountain. You, you don't just, you don't actually climb Mount Everest in a day. You, you peak in a day. You have to peak on, on a particular day. But a lot of times it can take weeks and sometimes months for someone to climb Mount Everest. And it has, and what they were pointing out in this documentary was it's not even necessarily skill because you could have the most skilled mountaineer not able to peak, and the reason is, is because they can't, their body won't climatize to the high altitude. I'm having a hard time here in Colorado climatizing, but um, that is a whole other level. And so even the most fit, trained person might get to, you know, the first base camp, and they're starting to not, their body's not adjusting. They might get up to second base camp, and now they, they, they are not doing well at all. They might have to come back down to first base camp see if their body will adjust before they can get back to second and then they get up to the third and, and if their body can adjust you know maybe they'll get the opportunity uh in and having that one last push to get to the peak and back to the last base camp so it's about uh, be, uh climatizing the body adjusting well spiritually speaking we're not used to this atmosphere everything i've been sharing today we are not used to that atmosphere it's not the atmosphere we live in. We live at a much lower altitude that's been defined by our culture. We live and we breathe and our bodies have adjusted to that. Our thoughts, our minds, our, our ideals, they're all adjusted to that, that atmosphere at this lower level. And so what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to climb. I'm asking, you know, this idea of understanding that the world is not a playground but it's a battleground is a pursuit that you don't just accidentally fall into. The, you know, to live a life like A.W. Tozer was describing there is not something you stumble into. It's not like you're walking along someday living in this lower atmosphere and just going through la-la land and um, living in the culture and then you fall into a pit that's called, you know, being, you know, completely absorbed in God's story. It's not a pit that you fall into. It's a mountain that you climb. And what happens is is that you, you get up to first base camp, you hear a sermon like this, you spend a weekend like you're doing, and you go, oh, I wanna get, I wanna get up to, I, I, wanna, I wanna do that. You get up to first base camp, and all of a sudden the air's pretty thin. There's not as many people. And then you begin to go like, this is a little uncomfortable. There's not as many people here. I'm having a hard time breathing. I'm not adjusted to this. I'm feeling very uncomfortable. My head's aching, I'm stuffed up. I want to go back to Texas. I want warmer weather. Why did we plan a story summit in, you know, Colorado? Uh, you know, just kidding. Uh, but, I mean, you, you, you go on that journey and you begin to realize, wow, I need to, I need to adjust here. The, uh, but the local Sherpas, which you've heard about, that helped climbers, they live in that climate. They can go up without oxygen. They, uh, they, they are very comfortable going up and down the mountain, and it's because they live in that environment. So when you see people like Eric Ludy and you see some of the great leaders of our time, that you're just like, how do they do that? How do they live the way they do? They seem to like really get it. Well, they, they've, they live in that climate. You know, they've made a choice to say, I'm, I'm not gonna live in the climate of the culture. I'm not gonna live at that elevation. I am going to pursue an elevation that helps me see God's story 
And that's the difference, and we're in, encouraging everybody here to, to do that. And that will actually give you, you hope. It's not going to ruin your life, and that's the fear. You're at, at a precipice, and when you're at the edge of your seat in Act 4, your fear is that evil is going to win. And so you're, then you begin to debate what side you want to be on. Do you know that's really what's happening right now? You are in that debate. You are at the edge of your seat and you're looking at things unfolding and you're saying, wow, do I really want to be on the side that appears to be losing? Do I really want to join that story? And uh, so it's not for the faint of heart, but it is the right story. And so I want to encourage you to um, enter the fourth act by faith. Embrace the fourth act as the Apostle Paul taught us in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and really, truly begin to climatize ourselves to that type of living and it's going to take work. So let's pray. We're going to invite Rhett to close us in a couple songs. And uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story summit. We thank you for the opportunities that we have to gather together. Lord, Lord we pray that you are doing you're accomplishing your purposes in individual lives here today. We thank you that you do have a plan, that there's not a, your word is very clear, that not a single person in the drama is, is without a role uh, that you have in your mind. We just pray, God, that we would be in submission to your purposes and plans. In Jesus' name, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.